Hello, and welcome to Camp Scary and Squee, a podcast that tests my theory that every horror movie exists on a scale of divine camp to pure terror. I'm your host, Damien O'Mara, and my guest today describes his perfect horror film as having suspense, a clear explanation of the source of horror, and one that creates and sticks to its own rules. Welcome, Dave Gorkroger. G'day. I'm very happy to be here. Well, and I have the, the all-important question. What's been haunting you this week? Uh, the 60-year-old electrical work in the ceiling of my house that wants to catch on fire. And in the meantime is tripping circuit breakers and threatening to uh, empty my bank account. <laughs> it is a real, real but, horror. And it, it's been haunting only- me for some time, <laughs> but it's this is... It's upped its game in the last few weeks. I thought home ownership was the dream. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, haven't you seen the Amityville horror? <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> uh, and look, I'll give you the honours. Um, what horror movie are we talking about today? Ooh, today we are having a look at a film co-written by Joss Whedon, The Cabin in the Woods. Yes, and so some quick stats on this. Uh, released in 2011, although delayed a few times, and that was a, a limited release. The a proper release was 2012. Uh, written, uh, co- as you said, co-written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard. So we all know Joss Whedon from Buffy fame and Drew Goddard from Cloverfield. Uh, and Goddard also directed It Stars. Uh, so top billing goes to Kristen Connolly, Chris Hemsworth, Brand Krantz, Jesse Williams, Richard Jenkins, Bradley Whitford. No billing for Amy Acker, which I think is a travesty because I love Amy Acker. Absolutely. And, yeah, a very Whedonverse pick for the film, of course. Um, <laughs> Joss, Joss Whedon being you know, uh, notorious uh, for you know, recycling actors through different projects, uh, which, which, which is always great if you're a, a fan of some of his work as you get to see people doing new stuff. I mean, this is... Uh, uh, I think this was post Dollhouse as well, because um, uh, Fran Kranz was was in that with Amy Acker as well. He was. Uh, it's it's interesting because it's Amy Acker is one of those people. I first noticed her in Dollhouse, and then went back and was just like, "Oh, she's just in everything I like." Right? Okay. Um, she's and she's quite re- like she's really good in this kind of genre of that kind of things that are a bit thrilling. She often plays someone that's a bit complex. Yeah, she's a, a, a really fun, fun actor to, to watch on screen. And, and of course, as you mentioned, Chris Hemsworth's in this. And because of the delay in the film, this was was filmed before he was cast as Thor, which, of course, is now one of his most iconic roles. But this was released afterwards. So uh, in some ways, it probably got a tiny, tiny little bump, uh, a, little, a little Hemsworth bump off the back of some Marvel action there. Uh, I think you'd get a little bit of crossover between horror fans and, and MCU fans. A little, little, little uh, there's going to be just a little bit. Actually, it does take me to, so the film grossed $66.5 million, which was against a $30 million budget, which is not like nothing to be scoffed at. You know, it's not like breaking records, but that's a, that's a nice amount of money for a film to have made. It, it is, especially for one that, had such a, a tortured route to release as this one did. I mean, uh, films that um, sit on the shelf for whatever reason or go through development hell rarely end up in a good place. Uh, and so this one did okay. And I, I think is also, um, like many horror films, 
do end up as a bit more of a, a cult classic than a box office success. I mean, uh, most of the uh, horror films that I've seen you know, in my entire life would have been you know, starting out on dodgy VHS or Betamax tapes um, through to home rentals um, and you know, now, now on streaming services. Uh, for whatever reason, it, it, I don't think that, that horror hits as big as a box office genre uh, as perhaps it should um, because, you know, watching scary movies in a theatre with a whole bunch of other people is actually a blast. Yeah, it, very true. And it's funny because, like, there are horror films that have been huge box office successes and a big part of that has been about, the, the you know, if you think of, say, The Exorcist, this huge PR engine behind it that was all about making, like, telling people how scary it was. And um, there's that thing where, you know, the the PR behind something like The Exorcist was so strong that it permanently affected Linda Blair's life. Like mm. she, yeah. she had security and, and, you know, had to protect herself because they created this sense that she was literally possessed and that people watched this film and went through huge emotional turmoil, fainted, threw up, all sorts of stuff. Um, and it, it there is a, a real sort of argument to make that we should be experiencing horror in the in the cinema. Absolutely, uh, and I mean it doesn't matter you know what subgenre of horror it is either. There, I think that um, and, and where if it sits on your spectrum um, from uh, from you know pure terror to pure camp, uh, there is still something that that is really good about seeing that in a group. So of course. Um, I watched Kevin in the Woods entirely alone <laughs> on a streaming service uh, just recently to you know, catch up for today. But uh, but I do like the horror experience when you know when it's available, and it would be great to see more um, horror. You know, g- given that um, you know b- big theatrical support. I mean, I think uh, Get Out was probably the last thing uh, that that really hit its stride. Um, uh, as a big theatre moment, uh, but you know, and I guess uh, Parasite. If you really want to, you know, you could argue that that, is, that yeah, but for different it's reasons, like a horror horror thriller sort of yeah. edge. Um, but again, they they're not the sort of. I don't think that they're necessarily going to um, push a big horror renaissance in the theatre because a lot of the stuff that we're seeing in in horror and what horror fans ask for. Um, is often seen as not being palatable or stuff that, that studios want to present, which brings us to The Cabin in the Woods. Yes. And the very, very strong meta story to this, which we can talk about later. Let's we can. Well, we're, we're, we're almost there. Uh, very quickly before we uh, go into about uh, more about this film. So the IMD description of The Cabin in the Woods is five friends go for a break at a remote cabin where they get more than they bargained for, discovering the truth behind The Cabin in the Woods which is the most meta description for this film. <laughs> in Absolutely. Like, it, there's just levels upon levels upon levels, and it's just all in one IMDb description. Um, and I should warn anyone who keeps listening beyond this point that there will be spoilers. Uh, if you haven't watched this film and you are, are worried about spoilers, don't listen to a review about it. But also, um, yeah, we're about to delve into it. Um, so- I got the sense because you you sort of put this forward as a, as something you want to watch it was this or Scream and Scream was already taken <laughs> and I got a sense that there, it sort of held a special place for you in terms of a horror film 
Very much so. Because the thing that I do love about The Cabin in the Woods is that it is – it plays a whole bunch of different roles. It, on one hand, it, it is kind of a love letter to the horror genre, uh, but it also is a sometimes really biting critique of the horror genre and of the audiences. Uh, and it plays with that in a couple of really, really clever ways. A- and um, why I sort of put this one up as an option along with Scream is I think, you know, Scream also has that uh, – that real depth about being a good horror movie um, while also, you know, interrogating the tropes that it's using itself. Now, I I think uh, they do it in very, very different ways. Um, I think as a pure scary movie, um, Scream is, is, you know, fits that bill better. Uh, The Cabin in the Woods is having a different kind of conversation. Um, I think the humour in Cabin in the Woods um, is a lot more prominent, um, which you know, is, again, not unusual uh, in a Joss Whedon script. Um, but, yeah, I, I love both of them for that way of, of, of really interrogating the, the genre um, because, of course, I, I, I came up watching, as I said, bad VHS copies of uh, horror movies through the 80s and early 90s. Um, and while some of that stuff was great, some of it was just uh, trash, <laughs> to be quite blunt. And so uh, it was It was the sort of thing that was at every party and every sleepover. Um, and so looking at that stuff, you know, with uh, open eyes and, and with a real love for the genre is something that I enjoy to see. It, look, I, I feel like it's something we can both connect on in that while I, my sort of love of horror was through the late nineties, early noughties when I was a, a teenager, it very much became this great feature of the sleepover and, you know, different people wanted horror for different reasons. And you sort of, you can look at the friends that you watched horror films with at that age and see how those relationships have, have with horror have changed. And I really loved it. And went on to study film and like am obsessed with it and love when I see an intertextual reference between, you know, a modern horror film and something I saw that was made in the seventies or eighties and other friends are just like, they just want the scare. Others reject it entirely. And everyone I think has moments of that relationship with horror. Early Absolutely. In yeah. And I think this, this would be a bit of a litmus test for different types of horror fans too. I think there would be um, a lot of horror fans who would come away from the cabin in the woods really disappointed in it. Um, but again, we'll, uh, I've got some theories about that too, and we'll, we'll get to that as we go along. <laughs> well, if we look at, um, I guess, how we open uh, in this, in cabin in the woods, like th- there's immediately uh, an indication that there's some kind of self-awareness to this. Um, It's not immediately evident in the sense that we don't know instantly that we're dealing with these producers, essentially, but it is immediately evident that there's something going on that's being orchestrated. Absolutely. There's something very, very weird. I mean, we we, we open up not with any of the five friends who are heading to the cabin, but with like a bunch of people who look like they're in the most boring government job ever. You know, uh, just talking about problems at home, and and it, it sort of throws you off a little bit. Uh, and of course, we then you know cut through to our 
uh, our heroes and heroines or victims or however we want to describe them, and, and we start to vibe more into the the, the you know, more traditional take of setting up uh, a horror film. Uh, you know, the brief introduction, we everyone gets their quick character beat, uh, but woven in there, there's actually a, a couple of you know little tidbits that will show up later on as as being useful to the story. Um, again. I think the, the script's well crafted. So, for example, we find out uh, that Jules has, has had her hair dyed, and that's not something that normally happens. And, and uh, you know, we, we we find out about the you know some of the relationships between the other characters, which is you know, which will pay off later on. And of course, as we see everyone pile into the the big camper van and, and head off up the road, uh, we have the slow pan away to. Uh, the guy on the roof with the the earpiece who's reporting in, which, as you say, just all you know, immediately shows us that this this just is not uh, going to be straightforward. No, I, there's also this great yeah, as they're they're in the camper van, which they're taking a camper van to a cabin. <laughs> I know, which <laughs> I found quite perplexing. But um, Marty, the kind of the person who takes that role of the full, that traditional role in a horror film, uh, well, particularly uh, uh, the slasher. Stoner. Yes. <laughs> yes, our stoner. Goes on this huge kind of philosophical, we're getting away from all of the monitoring and we're unplugging and it's so important because, the you know, we're so scared to be disconnected. Um, but little does he know that he's about to be more wired in than ever. Absolutely, and, and again, lots of nice little nods like that through, throughout this. But uh, it, it, it's also a, a great tell in terms of the script of from the very, very start. You know, Mar- Marty spoils the whole thing. Yeah, like he really does. <laughs> really, you like he tells like, you exactly what's going to happen. And we're, we're being watched. There are yeah, and as he goes along, you know, as things get weirder and weirder, and he starts talking about puppet masters and things like this. It's like the whole way through, Marty is just telling you, look, this is what's happening. And of course, uh, you know, no one else in the film is listening. Uh, and as we, as the audience, I wonder how long it takes for us, even though we actually do see the the moving pieces uh, behind. I, th- I think you know we still don't get it at the same level that Marty does uh, uh, for a fair while. No, and it's I think probably the other funny thing there, and this is getting into something that comes along a lot later. But he's put in this position of the fool, which is also something that kind of aligns with. The, the jester and there's this hind, kind of speaking truth to to power thing. Like he's he's holding a mirror up and saying this is what's happening and he's potentially much more insightful than we all give him credit for. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do we, do we want to roll through the plot as we go? Yeah, we should roll through the plot. So probably the next important thing is that we get to meet Mordecai, the gas attendant. <laughs> uh, I, like I love this trope. I love that kind of you know, insane warning sign that everyone just ignores for God knows what reason. <laughs> like, yes. So the character, the, the, the camper van pulls up at a, a gas station and there's this confrontation with this almost deranged looking old man who's like proper aggressive with them. And that's like a bit of a shift on that trope as well, because normally he's kind of like, you know, I saw, I saw some young people they went up there and they never returned. Um, but it's like he's he's a bit scary, and like you almost think he's going to be a villain. And it, it and it's the first good jump scare of the, <laughs> yeah. of the film. And 
I, this, this is what I think makes it a good jump scare. I knew it was coming, and I was, and it's still like it got, yeah. God no, damn, it, it got me. Um, it really does. And yeah, and, and the the as you say, the the aggression there um, throws a real different vibe into it. Uh, and, and of course, the the really funny thing is uh, later on when you know it's revealed that the the people we saw at the at the start. Um, uh, you know, Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins' characters, Hadley and Citizen, are, are basically running a control room that's behind the scenes that is going to be, you know, uh, pulling the strings of, of of the young people while they're in the cabin. And, uh, of course, Mordecai rings into the control room. Yes. And they're just mercilessly mocking him. Like, like, like it, this is just like a workplace comedy on one, on one hand, um, you know, a, around the – wrapped around this horror movie and it, it, it's a lot of fun to sort of the, the, sort of hear Mordecai you know, yeah am um, I on upset, speakerphone <laughs> yeah upset about being on speakerphone I can hear the echo I'm on speakerphone <laughs> yeah a fun a fun character and, and look I, I do wish that maybe we we could have played him out a little bit more but as you say like because he's so aggressive you think oh he, he, there's gonna be a big thing well, there and it had been a while since I saw it and like he's super aggressive and then you see that horrible picture, that painting, and there's this person holding like a scythe or something and I was like, oh, that's Mordecai. And I was like, oh, I've seen this. I know that's not him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, I, they, I throw some money at him. I think he throws it on the ground and they like bolt yeah. off and they, they head to the cabin. And, and we see here uh, again another staging piece in that we see the cabin going into a great big, uh, tunnel that's cut out of the, the the side of the hill, and as we pan, as we follow through the and watch the the cabin go into the tunnel, we also see a, a bird that's following it along and flies into a force field and yes. it gets absolutely torched. Um, which again, first time I watched it, I'm just kind of like, that's really really weird. But of course, it turns out that that's Chekhov's force field. We're going to need that later on. Um, but I get back to what, the things that I like about. You know, horror movies. I like them when they set rules and then stick with them. And, and I think this is again part of it: is you need to call out um, everything that is going to happen in this story nice and early to bring the audience along. And I, so I think they they actually achieve that reasonably well. Uh, you know, all, all the sort of behind the scenes uh, stuff in the control room. Um, it does really feel like a like a government department. Like this is the kind of office environment where you know you've you've got the intern who's everyone's ignoring. You've got a whole bunch of people from different departments who you know they work together, but they don't necessarily like each other or get on very well. And they they all you know can be snarky about everyone you know who's not doing their job and that sort of stuff. Uh, I think it's well developed, um, and, and that's. A big part of what keeps, you know, keeps the whole thing rolling. Yeah, it, it, it does this thing that it kind of connects you to these people that are pulling the strings. Who you kind of, you can see that they're doing something. It feels sinister, but you also like see that they're all people, and it's kind of that creates a bit of a, a bit of depth to e the evil or the big bad that hasn't existed before. Like often, the big bad is something that you only really. You you get to see their backstory, but then the backstory is an explanation of of why they're bad. Whereas this is you kind of see it, an explanation of their life outside of this thing that that they're doing. 
in their government department type job. Absolutely. And it, I guess we should probably also discuss the, um, the, the idea of the fact that this is only one control room from around the world that, you know, on, on this particular weekend, um, all throughout Europe and, and in Japan and, and a bunch of other places, there are other teams who are also going through different rituals but of, of sacrifice. So here we're looking at trying to manipulate um, five young people, but in the different countries, we've got very, very different looking rituals. Um, and, you know, the, it, it's noted that Japan has never failed before. Um, you know, the news has just come in that Berlin has just failed and they're very dismissive of the Germans' capabilities. Um, and, you know, they make the point that they've only ever missed once. Uh, and so there's a lot there's a lot of confidence going in um, without – and it's great to see that this is part of um, you know, a bigger conspiracy with, without still really um, letting us know exactly yeah. um, what is behind it. Well, it's also – it's a nice setup to kind of – as you say, is that something that creates rules that then sticks to it. It's a nice setup to allow us to understand how all of these things exist in the same world while also not contradicting one another. So it's all about the, the cultural implications of, of how this is formed and everyone has their own culture, but this, you know, this is what America's or the US or Western society really has as a cultural kind of norm. Um, and, you know, that that's been perpetuated through movies is part of the the reason why it's the ritual they follow and it's you know you can say the same for japan because their, their example is what is essentially samara from the ring mm. um, it's, it's taking these cultural myths and showing how it works for them it's how they achieve the end goal of of these ritual sacrifices um once we're in the cabin so they arrive at the cabin i see there, there's lots and lots of references to other films, but in particular, this kind of next series of scenes, you see so many connections to the Evil Dead, which is, many would argue, the original Cabin in the Wood kind of, of film. Mm-hmm. Yep. And one of them that, and I don't know if this is intentional, but the first character to walk in there, something that happens in the Evil Dead that I always look at, and it makes me think of me, because if I go to an Airbnb, I would- find every light switch. It's the first thing I do. I don't know why. I'm just like, I need to know where all the lights are. And in The Evil Dead, the first thing he does is he walks in there and he turns on every bloody light and you sort of watch him just <laughs> turning on this light. And like, it served a purpose in that they did, they needed to like light the set. And so this is a way to yes. do it. And I was sort of watching that and she's walking around and she's switching on lights. I'm like, was that on purpose? Or is it the same reason? Like, are they just trying to light the, light the set? <laughs> But in my head, I'm like, no, that's a really deep reference to, to that first scene in Evil Dead. Well, absolutely, and and you know, we 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 get a couple of other uh, Evil Dead references as as we go along. But of course, the you know, the first thing that we see is the the the, the cabin's already a little bit unsettling. We've got the, the wolf head on the wall. Uh, we've got the one way mirror between a couple of the bedrooms. That, that is, which is weird. Um, yeah, and that that. More than creepy, and uh, it, it gives it that nice little unsettling feel. And of course, the reason that we even discover the one-way mirror is because it's covered by the weirdest painting that you can imagine. No, it's not covered by the painting. Um, it the painting gets put on it later, 
Right. There's, no, that's fit, he, that's oh, does he, he take pulls, the painting off? The painting off because he's going. I don't want to look at that. Oh, and then next I've, thing you know, Holden's looking through, and you can see Dana through the getting changed. Yeah, and we see that moment of, um, you know, a redeeming feature for this character as he's like, "Oh, maybe I'll watch." No, I better not watch. Hey, stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a much better person than me. Oh. Uh, and so then, of course, you know, it's just fun times after that. We're swimming in the lake. We're sitting around having some beers. We're chilling out. Get to. It's about the here where Chris Hemsworth's accent just, <laughs> just he just stops trying. <laughs> he he was trying to have a southern accent at the beginning, right? I don't know. I really don't. And it, like at this point, it's just Aussie, like <laughs> the Asgardian. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, let's just you know. By the time Thor came out, everyone had just accepted. Oh, she's. <laughs> Thor's an Aussie. That's what he sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, th- th- this is all, you know, pretty basic stuff. In the, uh, and um, the, the, the thing to note here, of course, is that even the observation from the people that, that their friends are acting out of character. Um, so, for example, we've got the great scene with Jules dancing in front of the fireplace, which, you know, is weirding a few people out. Uh, and, of course, Jules kissing the wolf. Which is yeah the <laughs> the mounted the, wolf head. I, the, I, I find that really head, hard. As Marty calls it, <laughs> I find that scene really hard to watch because in my head I'm like, well, clearly that's going to come to life and bite her face off, <laughs> which it doesn't. I feel like it's a it's not a missed opportunity, but I feel like it is. <laughs> and then of course we we get to uh, our next sort of Evil Dead reference, and that's the trapdoor. Yeah, flying open like exactly how it happens in the evil dead and it's the same level of jump scare like the first time i watched evil dead it was like it was the perfect kind of thing because they kept trying to break the tension and then this is the first time where it's like oh no they're not going to break it and it's quite similar in that there were all these moments of tension that they break and this is the first one where it just kind of goes oh no okay we're in it which is Mm. like really a nice reference but also a, a good way to start getting this moving and so, of course, as we have to in every horror movie, everyone has to has to go down into the creepy basement. <laughs> Again, despite the protestations of Marty saying, yes. don't go down there. I dare all, are they playing truth or dare? I dare all of you, don't go down into the creepy basement. Where, of course, we find just an assortment of weird and wonderful items, uh, of course, many of which are references to other horror films, um, but uh, and as and as we learn, each one of these items is is linked to uh, what will end up causing the death of the uh, the, the the young people. Uh, and of course, we had that great scene uh, down in the control room of everyone placing bets yes. on, on which we- thing they would they would end up using, which would be the thing that summoned the particular like the particular big bad that would kill them. Um, exactly. And it it is <laughs> it is uh, a, one of the great rules and a part of that love letter to horror that it becomes about don't read the Latin, which I yes. I really loved. <laughs> and Marty's going, don't read the Latin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which which in itself, you know, is a, yeah, a Necronomicon reference and, you know, like, and uh, having read it, the people in the control room, well, you know, have no choice but to press the button 
and uh, release the the Buckners, um, who or, or as they're listed on the board, the uh, zombie redneck torture family, which is different from regular zombies. I was just about to say, not zombies, zombie redneck torture family. Very important distinction. And very much, uh, you know, I guess, getting a, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe from the Buckner family. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, this is where stuff really starts going wrong. And th- th- this is where we, I, I guess we start moving into you know, some of the, the, the scarier stuff. Because, like, as I said before, like, the a lot of the control room stuff, you know, um, even the stuff with the, our, our main characters, th- there's a lot of comedy and a lot of stuff that sort of breaks the tension. It, it, it's more creepy than scary for the most part. Um, even as we start moving into um, more of the horror becoming, you know, in your face rather than just um, hovering around waiting for us. Yeah, and it it sort of it gives us this opportunity as well to that that comedy kind of I think that's that false sense of security that you really like. It's a really smart thing to do in a horror movie is to get everyone feeling comfortable. And it's that whole point of there are all these opportunities for something to go wrong where they don't. So you stop expecting something to go wrong. And it's, it sort of leads us to our, I guess, our first big death is that uh, I keep forgetting names. Kurt and Jules uh, end up sneaking out into the woods for some sexy fun time. Well, yeah. I mean, why would you do it in a house when there's like... Poison ivy everywhere that you can go and like, roll around. It would around. be so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> look, 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 to be fair, uh, you know, uh, Chris Hemsworth and Anna Hutchinson, very, very attractive actors, and I, I think that if either of them were propositioning to someone to roll around oh, look, in yeah. the woods, there would be very few people who would sort of turn around and go, look, no, yeah. no I don't it, think so. You take Hutchinson, I'll take Hemsworth. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> Uh, but it, before, like, you know, this is, this is scene happening and it's possibly one of my favorite moments is the, uh, the hope for boobs Yes, <laughs> in the control room. They're like, oh, let's see some boobs. And, and there's, there's the, um, you know, the, the exposition character, the guy whose first day it is so that we have someone who needs to be told what's going on to help yep. us understand what's yep. going what, on. What will the intern? Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. It's no. the, um, um, tr- uh, Truman, the security guy. Yeah. But he sort of goes, you know, oh, you know, really? Is that how it? And they're like, it's not up to us. You know, there are people upstairs and there are people downstairs who need these things. And, you know, so she's, there's this, the classic horror movie rule that she has been a bit of a slut and therefore must die. And it's always, you know, that that trope that the first person to die is the sexually promiscuous woman. Um, And we get to, the sexy fun time continues. She rolls over. She, she's reaching, is she reaching up? I don't know. Her hand, her yeah, hand is like, extending she, strangely off to the distance. No, she just no, no grabbing. I mean, there's no sheets there to grab, but she yeah. just wants to grab onto something because, you know, she's searching Chris for Hemsworth a route. Is, is you know, turning her crank uh, only to have her uh, hand sort of pinned to the ground with a trowel. Yes. <laughs> I did, oh, like you've, it, it's a good. I assume a practical effect. It looks real. It looks horrific. Now, here's something that I found really interesting. Again, I mean, I've already copped to completely jumping out of my skin when 
uh, Mordecai, you know, wandered into the the, the gas station. Uh, again, I knew this. I, I couldn't remember exactly how Jules was first attacked, but I realised that her death was coming, having seen it before. But that, like, the stabbing didn't sort of hit me the same way a jump scare did. It was just just hit me in a really raw place instead. Like it was a very, very different sort of experience. Um, and then that went through like all of what came next. I mean, the rest of the, of the Buckner family uh, attacks them. Um, we've got Kurt trying to to fight them off and obviously um, Jules taken and sliced open with the nastiest looking oh, yeah. it- Crosscut saw that you can really even imagine. I mean, that um, was not a quick, clean cut. Oh no, that was that, that, that was a that rusty was experience. Yeah. Um, oh, you. I can see you like. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> look, look for for me. Uh, that was probably one of the most you know, intense moments in the in the film because it, it is just so. Um, really raw and it's it's very very practical and yes I know there's you know there's zombie redneck you know torture zombies uh, but but it, uh, the, it's not hard to sort of look at what Jaws is going through and be able to um, you know feel the fear mm. um, it, it really does build that up incredibly well uh, I mean we're going to see a bunch of other monsters as we go through the film um, and. I think in some ways, because they're stripped a little bit of their context of you know, where they're originally from, um, then they don't become quite as scary as this moment right there where Jules dies. Yeah, it's it's the most kind of – I'm trying to think of the right word. It's kind of the most visceral kill of the whole film. Yes, absolutely. And every other one – because we – yeah, you're right, that we've le- we learn a bit more about it and suddenly – they've become less meaningful and less we've become less connected to the characters. We almost start to kind of think, do we need, which side are we on in this situation? Yes. Yeah. And then I think this really pushes you pretty firmly away from the control room team. Although I think it's really worth um, pointing out too, after Jules's death, there's this very, very solemn moment in the, uh, in the control room. Yes. Where, you know, it's, um, acknowledge that this is, you know, part of a sacrifice, and that's before they they then go and reveal at the back of the room. You know, there's been these five panelled doors, and the first panel's lifted up, and a, a big handle pulled, which again you, it sets off um, a Rube Goldberg machine to break <laughs> a bottle, and we see what's pres- presumably blood flowing down um, somewhere uh, and and um, in, into a lower chamber. Um, as we you know hear that obviously talking about the threat from down below, um, but yeah, so there is that really solemn moment there, which, which again we don't really, and maybe that's just because it's the start of the ritual, but we don't have that for the other deaths as we go along. That, that minute, that sort of solemnity from the the directors themselves, uh, or the yeah the directors themselves mm. um, that we see as we go along. Yeah, it's interesting. I- I, I guess if they tried to maintain that, it wouldn't. It would probably become a bit tired very quickly. If like yeah, every time so. someone died, it's like, oh, now we have to, you know, show Say how. A rosary. Yeah, it's like, oh, we get it. Like we can extrapolate. It's probably happening in the background. We're not seeing it, kind of thing. Um, so I, what happens next is that Dana and 
Holden, uh, well, she's not a virgin, but she's kind of, she's just. She's the virginal character. She's just. Well, you know, she's off a bad breakup with a horrible academic who's abused his position. Yes. Like that guy, well, again, that guy's getting me too'd even harder than Joss Whedon. So, yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, he <laughs> This 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 film has definitely made a decade ago. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you know, and we get that yeah, the nice quiet sort of you know mood between between Holden and Dana, and as you say, yeah, sort of Marty wanders off because that's. But also has a fabulous line, which we should have probably foreshadowed that when they're reading from the diary of one of the Buck the Buckner girl, they talk about that when. Um, her father is killing, he gets a husband bulge. <laughs> yeah. And when Marty sees these two sort of getting a bit hot and heavy, he walks past and goes, your husband's bulge is showing. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, uh, but he, he goes out and another note to kind of like show that he's sort of more aware than everyone else, he notes that there's no stars. Yes. Which, of course, would be completely weird uh, if you are in this isolated place. Like one of the wonderful things about getting away from built-up areas is the fact that you don't have that light pollution. You get your starry nights. You know, it's it's gorgeous, and yet it, it it's completely missing from uh, from this scene. Yeah, just that kind of something's just a, it's just off. It's off just enough to like make him see that there's something wrong, and we see the young Buckner. In the distance, just barely, like you have to be looking just mm-hmm. behind him to notice it, that she sort of comes in and out of frame a bit and in and out of the shadows and wandering towards him. Um, and you're kind of, again, waiting for the scare, but we, it kind of pays off in a different way as uh, as Chris Hemsworth as Kurt bails in. And, and, yeah, and grabs Marty. Yeah. yeah, and grabs Marty, covered in blood. You know, something <laughs> something's gone down and they... They bolt into the house. He pushes through the the zombie girl, and they close the door. And and unsurprisingly, uh, Dana and Holden and everyone's kind of freaked out about uh, Kirk's appearance uh, and wanting to know where the hell Jules is, which would be fairly understandable when one of your friends shows up covered in blood and the other one and you know, the other their, one's missing. Their partner's missing. <laughs> like yeah, that would be a little bit distressing. And I've got to be honest. Your first thought wouldn't be, oh, my God, there are torture zombies out there. You'd be like, this person I know is very different than what I thought. Yes. Um, but they open the door to go find Jules, and standing there is uh, one of the uh, the Buckners, the one with the bear trap that he throws at people. Yes. Very strange choice in weapon. <laughs> Again, it just it just feels horrible. Like, oh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, and when, like um, whenever it grabs someone, you just like you, oh, it just makes you want. <laughs> you just kind of writhe a bit, um, and he throws Jules' head into the room, helping everyone understand what has happened to Jules. <laughs> and uh, not not the best bit of prop making ever, but um, getting the message across. Yes, an effective message, all the same. And we get a, Another really interesting point in this, in the in the kind of rulemaking and something that we start to see is Kurt says, well, we've got to all stay together. And the control room freaks out. No, they've got to split up. They need to split up. Otherwise, we can't do this. And they release some kind of drug 
But yeah, and and this isn't the first time, of course, be, uh, because well, we, we've had it revealed to us earlier that Jules's uh, hair dye was, it was actually um, embedded with some stuff that was going to slow down her cognitive function, and that they were going to start you know pumping pheromones around the place to help you know encourage her to be more promiscuous. So again, the the whole thing here where we're presented with Jules as the dumb promiscuous blonde. That's all something that has been created by the, the the control room. This isn't actually her character. This is something that the sacrifice has demanded, and so they have created. And and again, where uh, Kirk decides, you know, we'll, we'll all split up and cover more ground. It, it is under the influence of something else that is clearly affecting his uh, his thought processes. So they all, they, well, so they do split up, which again, no one challenges. He goes, oh, actually, no, we should split up. Like it's instant. And they go, yes. Okay. <laughs> and they all go to their rooms and then the, the system locks the doors behind them. Let, let's just, let's just assume it's a, it's a trauma response <laughs> because after Jules' like, rolls in, that's probably fair enough. Yeah. I feel like if I was in that situation, I'm like, no, no, no. First idea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> how can you tell? <laughs> uh, but this sort of gets us to this. They're all in separate rooms and it gets Marty to discover some of what's going on. He breaks a lamp and finds a camera and starts to, like, pull at, pull at the thread that is this camera that's wired in and find that it's sort of wired through the room and there's something going on. And they, they're about to to do something. I think they're going to release some drugs or something into his room to stop him from doing it. But uh, one of the zombie rednecks comes Judah. to the rescue. Judah. Judah. Yes. Comes Judah in, comes to the rescue. Rescue. And gets him out of the, pulls him through the window and out into the, the outside world. And interestingly, Marty tries to fight back, but then is pulled off screen and down into a bit of a ravine where we hear some stabbing. Do. And we then see in the control room, next panel open, and uh, I pull the next switch, Int- which is interesting enough, followed by like a, a slight tremor, like a slight mm. earthquake in the control room after they do that, which again is you know, foreshadowing what's to come. Um, it is, so I'm trying to think what happens next. So much is going on. Uh, well, we we we, we have goes to Dana uh, we have Holden smash through the window, so we yeah, and so he and Dana end up together. Oh yeah, the um, one way mirror. Yep. Yes, and I think Judah Buckner is now in Dana's room. Yes. Yes, and they find a trapdoor that takes them down to the black room, which is mentioned in the Necronomicon style book as the place mm-hmm. where, uh, where Judah all the kills, happens. kills the people. <laughs> um, Judah follows them down. He. Bear traps. No, no, sorry, no, it's not Judah. It's, it's, it's whatever the dad's name oh, is. Oh, God. It's hard it to- Jacob? Jacob. Yeah, it's like kind of biblical creepy names. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so they're down in the black room and, of course, Holden gets hit with the bear trap and is being you know, lifted. ripped it's up towards the trap, which is just, just the worst. Um, but Dana manages to stab him in the face many, many, many times. <laughs> as <a way. laughs> Yep. And of course, you know, and and Kirk breaks through from the the other creepy room, and get the hell out of 
the the house and that, and it's time to plan their escape. It is, but also just before that, there's a they uh, click a button and there's an electric shock on the knife that she's holding and she drops it, which is yes. I thought was really clever as like addressing those tropes that we always see. You know, why did you drop the bloody weapon? Um, and then we from there we we are in the the camper van. They're speeding towards the the cave or the, the tunnel that they came tunnel. through to, to get there. And, and this is actually a great bit because the, the, this is where the, there is a, a great bit of tension when the people in the control room realise that the, the tunnel, which should have had uh, a rock slide to trap the, the victims there, the, the rock slide hasn't happened. And, and we see Richard Jenkins like sprinting down to maintenance and just yelling at these people. And, and they say, oh, we, we didn't get the signal. We don't know what's going on. And, and, Again, with as you mentioned before, flipping like whose side are we on here? You suddenly see this tension of oh, if the, if they don't get this rock slide down, they're just going to get away. They're gonna they're gonna um, they're, they're just gonna drive straight out, and that's that. Um, and so, of course, in the last second, we see uh, we, we, we see the rock slide wire. come on, um, and then then of course they're trying to reverse this massive camper van through a tunnel at high speed. Um, Look, you've you've got to suspend some disbelief (laughs) in a horror film. uh, Yeah. Uh, And, of course, so they they come out of the tunnel and, you know, they're just terrified thinking, how are we going to get out here? When they realise that the road has a massive switchback and that, you know, the far side of the road is just over this little ravine. It's it's actually not that far. And so Kirk pulls his uh, dirt bike off the back of the, the camp around. And, you know, we, and the we, academic we, does some quick maths. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and they decide, look, this is doable. They can make it. Uh, but, of course, we saw what happened to that bird. <laughs> we did. And so everyone knows what's coming. I think this is possibly why the... the Death stop having that impact as they go on because we all just know exactly what's about to happen. And so the only people surprised are the characters. Yes. As he revs, does a really good run up, jumps his motorbike across the road. Very high. Yeah. Very high. And then slams into the barrier that that uh, roasted an eagle not half an hour ago. And, and uh, drops to his death. Which unsurprisingly uh, freaks out Holden and Dana. Yes. <laughs> and so they're back um, in the camper van. At this point, it becomes pretty clear that that something weird is going on. So camper van. So they're back in the camper van, and so the plan is now they're just going to follow the road in the other direction because it must, or, or drive through the forest because it must take them somewhere to get them out of there. Um, and there was a little bit of a foreshadowing because there was a bloody handprint on the camper van when they first got in it to, to drive off. And so sort of you feel like it's about time, you know, they're kind of ticking people off one by one. Although probably sooner than you would expect in a traditional horror film, but mm-hmm. it, there's a reason for that. And Holden gets a knife through the throat. And I don't know about you, but I think this is a turning point for the film in a couple of different directions because Obviously, we're about to come into the final act and the, and the big reveal, but this is also, the, I think, the first time that um, there's a jump scare in the film that's not actually um, benign. 
Like, mm. up until now, all the jump scares have been like, oh, oh, no, nothing's happened. This time, there's a jump scare and a big, nasty knife through Holden's throat. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're sort of ramping stuff up a little bit. Um, you know, we're, we're letting go of the fun and we're trying to get a little bit more serious about what's happening here. Yeah. And we uh, go back to that, that beautiful lake where they plunge in, in the camper van, and Dana manages to get out of the skylight, but not before hmm. the zombie grabs her. And so she sort of has to fight her way to the top. She gets out, she gets onto the jetty, and we kind of cut to this party happening in the control room as they're yes. celebrating that the that four of the five deaths are are done and we we find out that actually that's enough the ritual is complete because the virgin sacrifice is kind of an optional extra as long as she suffers and you know if you hadn't suffered yet <laughs> she's yeah. about to suffer a she's bit about more. to suffer as we watch them all toasting champagne and on the monitors behind them she's uh having the fight of her life with uh that one was yeah. was that one Judah? I I can't remember. Oh, I can't remember. Again, they all look the same. <laughs> look, I hate to, this to be a zombieist podcast, but yes. they do. They really, <laughs> they really do. do. <laughs> uh, but so she's having this fight, and there's this is sort of the great reveal of it all is the the moment where the red phone starts ringing. Yes, and everyone sort of he's like shut off the music, and he's sort of walking there. And it's like, you can see the anticipation and he answers it and something has gone wrong. They don't actually have four deaths. They've only got three. And we cut back to Dana being tormented by the zombie just as Marty, not dead, died off screen. But, you know, that was a nice little fake out, uh, manages to catch the bear trap chain thing and rip it out of the clutches of the zombie before he has a chance to kill her. Yes, revealing why we had that earth tremor, because while the control room might have thought that Marty was dead, those down below certainly realised that he was not and were showing their displeasure at uh, the, uh, the the handle being pulled when it shouldn't have been. And this takes us to probably like where things get quite interesting in that Marty takes Dana to this room that he found that he managed to hotwire some stuff and it turns out he's the one that managed to stop the rock slide happening although i don't think he did yes. that on purpose I, yeah, you know, I, don't, I don't think they were very they weren't really explicit about that but yeah they, they said you know that that something had come from up above um and again it's all a bit vague but yeah it turns out that marty had inadvertently um almost saved his friends um but uh as he makes the point you know they might as well go down because like that clearly nothing good is happening up top. So yes. why not go down and find out what the, what the hell is going on? So, yes, they find this elevator, they get in, and it turns out that it's the cube that these monsters came from, and they enter this kind of monster museum. A great storage area. And and there are there are so many cool things here. And, again, like this is where we're seeing a lot of, a lot of, of uh, references to plenty of other um, horror films and of course you know everything on the whiteboard is there and there's um, a few other new things that will show up al- along the way uh, but I, I really like the way that this is done like the, the, the reveal um, you know moving along and they're sort of seeing sort of one cage after another until you finally see the point where there's all of these um, 
you know, capture cubes with all the different monsters in them. Um, just from uh, an architecture and engineering perspective, I don't know that that's the most effective way to store um, dozens and dozens of monsters. However, visually, it looks fantastic. It does. I mean, and it gives us that moment where they get to realise that um, that they chose because she sees the um, the kind of torture monster that I think is meant to be like Pinhead. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a Pinhead reference. Yeah. And they see the ballerina with the kind of sandworm mouth. Yep. And there's this moment of realisation as she looks at the the little ball that he's holding that Kurt was was playing with, with before yep. they read the Latin. And she goes, we chose, like we chose how to die. And then the elevator moves again and it opens and it's a man with a gun who has to kill Marty first so that the ritual uh, is successful. But luckily the... Uh, dismembered zombie arm that Marty had left in the corner <laughs> grabs the guard and the, and <laughs> manages to distract him enough that they can escape with his gun into this open chamber. It, and again, uh, from, uh, this brings up what is absolutely a really fun part of the film. But again, really poor design where not far from where this cube opens out into what looks like a foyer full of elevators right behind there there's a, a like a smaller sub control room where they find you know after you know being chased and shot at by uh by, by a bunch of armed guards who again seem to have really lost sight of the fact that they need to kill marty before data yes <laughs> like, they're just what, blindly shooting <laughs> once our automatic weapon fire starts happening it's like you're putting your, your ritual at risk here guys i don't think you're as well drilled as you think you are but uh they they find the the purge button who created that button and who decided it should open into the foyer of the facility like surely like purge, purge into the, the monsters <laughs> Send them all to the cabin at once. You don't sort of send them down where everyone's like everyone's working, where their offices are. It, it, it seems like a great flaw in this system. <laughs> someone, someone like did something on their last day of work to put that in before they said it's, "fuck all of you." Like that's it. it it's a, it's a very like uh, Death Star exhaust vent sort of <laughs> a design problem, isn't it? It really is, so, but. Maybe we, you know, years from now we'll we'll have a a sequel where we see that there was a disgruntled designer, <laughs> the purge button. He's like, I'll show you. Um, just deliberate all along. But we also like this becomes the most fun because you get to see like there are all these monsters and you're like, oh, you know, it'd be so cool to see what they do. You get to see all of them and you see them all killing everyone, uh, and. I like so some of them really stood out to me. I didn't really know what the dolls did, the people with the doll faces. No, they were just ge- generically creepy. <laughs> they creeped me out so much. I was like, I want a whole thing about them. Um, and you saw the surgeons who were just cutting up people oh, while they were yes. alive. Would, uh, look, uh, I also liked. Uh, I don't think we saw them come out of the elevator straight away, but we saw them on the monitors later. The three KKK guys. I'm yes, like, yeah, that's a, that's a, a decently scary thing. Uh, look, the unicorn that was like, like <laughs> that was ridiculous. People, like, <laughs> that is really not <laughs> the sort of um, normal story that you get around unicorns. But I mean, I, I guess it's fair. Yeah. Uh, what is a unicorn if not like a horse with a tri- uh, uh, kind of what's the word? The jousting stick. 
It's a jousting horse. <laughs> uh, it's a narwhal with legs. It is. That's all it is. <laughs> but we, the characters, you know, the, the night bat kind of bursts through and attacks them. So they have to leave the safety of their control room and they go out into this throng of monsters and start trying to find their way to like, you know, where they go next. The control room itself is overtaken and I forget which one's which of the two directors, producers, um, <laughs> but one of them manages to escape while everyone else dies and he gets yeah, into so these tunnels. C- Citizen gets away. Yes, Citizen. Uh, well, and, and Hadley. Yes. Hadley, who earlier on was rather despondent when he bet, uh, you know, during the big sweeps on, on the merman being chosen, which everyone sort of laughed at him for. And he was really disappointed because he just wanted to see a merman. Well, wish granted. Yes. <laughs> uh, Hadley, uh, who's in, in the control room, uh, has a merman just, you know, slopping towards him. And, and this is probably for mine, one of the funniest, funniest moments of the film. First, you know, just, just the, oh, the irony of being killed by the monster that I wanted to see. But then also the merman literally like you know, crawls along the ground, jumps on top of him, and, you know, chews into him. But the merman's got this big spout on his back <laughs> and like blood spurts out of there. <laughs> it's just gross and really, really funny. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you know, it has become a bloodbath because as the monsters were taking out the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the crew, the security crew of, uh, like the 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 foyer is just washed with blood, and, and and this is just becoming more and more of that. Like it, it's just becoming a little bit of a gore fest. And 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 the funny thing is, it's so often in you know, horror films, when we when you get to the gore, you actually start to sometimes lose the terror. Um, this is where it starts to become a bit funnier. Yeah, uh, and this is something not to take it to a different film, but Evil Dead is one of those films that. I never found it very scary because it was so steeped in gore and this kind of gross terror that it just, you never quite got scared. You were sort of so focused on all of the corn syrup everywhere and like how <laughs> yeah. ridiculous things were getting. And it's, it's a similar thing here. You just reach this point where you're just like, well, I'm not scared anymore. Like I, I'm expecting every camera shot to be another thing coming at me. And so I'm no longer yeah, I'm ready for it. I'm I'm ready for everything. Um, we get Citizen in the tunnels and he runs into Dana and Marty and Dana stabs him. And oh, like accidentally, she's just kind of running with a knife in front of her and yep. he turns a corner and like connects. Boom. You're done. And he tells her she has to kill Marty. And yeah. I think it, it's this great moment because it's soft enough that you know that Marty hasn't heard. He's sort of beckoning her to keep going. And they end up in this room that we've seen that has all of these ritual kind of drawings on these big stone tablets, carvings, I guess, on these big stone tablets. Yeah, big, that big been- reliefs uh, that they've been pouring the blood into. Uh, and, and, and finally, we sort of, this is, again, a, a great moment in the, in, in the film when the uh, up to now uncredited director of the facility played by Sigourney Weaver, uh, makes an appearance and explains explains it all for us. Yes. You know, we, we, we've had, and of course, oh, this is against the background too of um, part of the panic earlier on was because Japan's ritual failed. 
So everything was riding on this one now. And and Sigourney Weaver's director explains to us all that there are these old gods who need uh, a sacrifice every single year to stop them from returning. Um, and if we don't give the sacrifice exactly how they want it, they'll be unhappy. And at that point, you know, uh, I can't remember did uh, how Dana got the gun. Uh, was that the one that I think that Marty gave Marty it to her it, because yeah, she stabbed right. after she stabbed Citizen. He gave it to her. It's like take this, you know, it's easier. Yes, that's right. Um, and uh, so yeah, and, and explains that you know Marty needs to die. <laughs> And I reckon she was about to pull the trigger. I absolutely, yeah. If, the, if was, that werewolf had not come in at the right time. It was, you know, the utilitarian argument is like, well, Marty can die now and save the world or he can die when the rest of the world dies, your call. Um, but and, he he sees the werewolf coming behind her. He doesn't, He he's, she says, I'm sorry. And he says, so am I, as the werewolf <laughs> bites into her. And... Then it kind of ensues that Sigourney Weaver tries to, like, finish the job and she's fighting him. Uh, They flip over. The werewolf kind of gets her. He pushes them both off the edge into the abyss where these gods live. And it's back to him and Dana. Dana's mortally wounded, like, clearly about Mm. to die. Uh, But Marty is sitting with her and we kind of- we. We think back to the beginning of the film where he talks about how the whole the whole system just needs to be blown up and we can start again. And he's he says, she says, sorry, I, t- I tried to shoot you. And he says, sorry, I ended the world. <laughs> <laughs> and and so we get to the end. And what happens? The old gods emerge. They do. The, the hand ritual bursts fails. through the cabin and just as a final shot kind of falls towards the camera as like a, this is the end. Yeah. Uh, and, and stops right there. And, and so this, the, the, the uh, this is what I think um, the most interesting part of sort of the, the meta narrative ar- around the whole film is the ending because all the way through, you know, obviously with all the little references and bits and pieces, uh, it's very, very easy to see, where the you know where where the critiques are of, of the horror genre and, and you know where, where all the little nods are, but it's here at the ending that I, I I think the the trick is really really played. Like this is the the final twist, and it's I really love reading reactions to Cabin in the Woods because I think the, the, its greatest trick is not necessarily revealing that. Um, in a way that becomes obvious to absolutely everyone. And that is in that the, 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 the old gods that are being referred to through the whole film are, are us, the audience. And yeah. it's, it's our demand for blood and it's our demand that we go through these tropes and that the, the, that the promiscuous woman dies first and that, the, and that the, the virgin might live. But, you know, th- these are all the things that we have demanded from uh, from horror movies yeah. for, for for decades now, and all the way through to the fact that well, the gods are going to end the world if the ritual isn't done correctly. And, and it's really interesting reading people who who say who will go, oh, I hated the ending. I was really dissatisfied, 
and and then laying out some hate on the movie. And it's like, yes, that's exactly right. This is that's, exactly what they're saying. That's the whole point. <laughs> yes. Well, and this is like we, I did a when I was doing reading I, on this this film in particular, like a lot of Whedon's kind of reasoning behind creating this was to try and reset the expectations to say this is a love letter to horror, but it's also an acknowledgement and a bit of a critique that we have fallen into just this kind of culture industry of horror always perpetuating a particular understanding of the world, a particular way that we look at people and we need to reset this and start again. And it's probably like there's a question, there's a PhD in was that successful? I think Mm. before this and after this, there are examples of horror films that don't follow the rules that are entirely try try to be and can succeed in being entirely original. Although since this, I feel like we've seen more films that challenge it. The the one that comes to mind that you mentioned at the beginning is Get Out. Like Mm. that film in a way that many other films don't do isn't about the traditional tropes that we expect. It looks at horror in a very different way, in a very, not that psychological is new, but in a very psychological way that really challenges audiences and puts them in a really different perspective or a different position. And so maybe, you know, I don't want to give any, a white guy credit for Get Out because that's (laughs) not where we're going with this. But is the question, did this reset horror? And possibly not because like, I mean, I've watched yeah. I've watched a lot of horror movies since this came out, and these tropes continue. They continue to be <laughs> absolutely. But but that's it. I I, I think I, I I think that it achieved its aim in terms of um uh the message it was trying to send and and, and making that critique. I, I think it was great. And like I said, I I think the the slightly dissatisfying ending, um, as that perfect uh sort of allegory for what's happening on the screen and the old gods being angry. I think that's like the, the cherry on top. Oh yeah. Just What's watching a pretty tasty dessert. Yeah. Watching so, them get upset. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is really good. Um, and, and, and look, I'll, I'll put my hand up and go, yeah, my, my first instinct was, ah, like, like, isn't there some other way out of this? Like I, I felt that sort of dissatisfaction, not necessarily because Dana and Marty didn't die, but because I'm like, Ah, oh, so is is that it? Um, and yeah, it was only after you know um, another watch and more thought about it and going, oh, oh yeah, okay, now I get it, <laughs> I get it. Um, and and so I think that that means it was it's well done because I think even if you were like me and first time out, you went like the ending sort of caught you. Um, it's not enough to make you, you know, discard the film and never go back to it or or, or you know. Hopefully, I, I don't think it would be so disappointing as to make you actively hate it. Like, I think it's it it definitely um, sits in a place. Like I said, like it's not a, it's not a, as good a scary movie as Scream, you know, even no. though they have some of those um, great elements of of you know uh, critiquing the genre. Uh, well, it's it's never going to be primed for a sequel the way Scream was, you oh, know, God, no. which no, is no, such, again is another sure. another great trope of horror is to beat the dead horse until yeah yeah, uh, but it um like I I think I think it's a good film I I think that um there will be some would be some horror fans who would 
not like it at all, and and that's fine. Uh, but I also think there's probably some room there for people who aren't, um, you know, wouldn't describe themselves as horror fans, but definitely have that you know, adolescent experience of having seen them at sleep sleepovers or at parties or whatever, who would see enough of the tropes to be able to get the story. Because it, the, the, this is, I think, the other thing that's nice is that it, it is still relatively accessible like you don't have to have ridiculously deep knowledge um like there's some nice nods there for for fans who do uh but you know like i i i certainly uh, am not current with my horror film watching uh, but uh i definitely am steeped enough in the tropes to be able to enjoy cabin in the woods quite thoroughly so i i think it, it's um, it's really great in that sense. It, it it definitely fits to a genre, but it potentially has a, a broader audience appeal. Yeah, it doesn't. Re- there's not a a barrier to entry, as it were. You don't have to know every reference, see every Easter egg. You can watch this film and just go, "Oh, yeah, that's great." Like I really enjoyed it. It was a yeah, absolutely. And, and so you know, it's um something that ultimately I think um. You know, it, it it holds up pretty well. Um, the, the I don't think they were trying to be too um, adventurous with the special effects and things like that, um, which is great because that means that you yeah. also don't um, you know, run the risk of you know, running into stuff that a couple of years down the track really stands out as being you know, poorly done. Um, and, of course, also the horror genre um, often takes pride in – um, very practical, low-budget effects that... Um, well, it's something. there's know, something so beautiful about practical, low-budget effects. Yeah. And it's why you see so many first films from directors and writers be horror films, because they're, they're achievable. You know, clearly this film was big budget, but it could have been, to some degree, maybe not all of the kind of, you know, the technology stuff, but to some degree... This could have been achieved on a smaller budget. It could have been done with practical effects. It could have been, you know, alluding to the bigger picture without showing us the bigger picture and still being an effective film. It could have. And look, the other thing that I think that's really nice about it and that I haven't sort of seen uh, referred to often enough is the fact that while this um, film you know, is a you know, very, very meta, most horror films are. And that's something that's not necessarily acknowledged a lot outside of the genre. Uh, Like you are able to put real fears on screen uh, in a horror film in the way that you can't in most other genres. I mean, if you you look at the the stuff um, through the 80s where we're living through a time where socially we've got, you know, the satanic panic flowing out of the U S and we've got, you know, like it it seems weird to say it now, but like the, the, before the eighties, we we barely had this idea of the potential for children to be abused in Mm. any sort of sense. And yet, and and then it shot to prominence as an idea um, throughout uh, the early to mid eighties. And then, and you can see that reflected in the horror films from that time as well. There's a lot of stuff where, either by um, inaction or by something they've done, like parents have somehow created the, the scenario where their children are going to be unsafe. Um, and, and then, you know, even as you move on 
through the late 80s and early 90s. And, and, and we've got some of the sort of um, things like the AIDS crisis. And, and, and that, in a way, then gets reflected in some of the horror of that time of these sort of creeping menaces that that are invisible and almost you know, so difficult to stop. And trying to, um, you know, tap into those fears of a society is something that horror has always done pretty well, um, but I don't think is always well acknowledged. So, you know, I, I think that by taking subtext and making it text in mm. Cabin in the Woods, <laughs> you know, and really like putting the, the whole meta thing in your face with, with the control room and everything um, and that side of the story, that is also calling out the fact that, you know, that there is something else going on. You know, there is in these other, in, in the genre, there is already subtext that isn't always um, seen by people out, you know, outside the fan base. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I think that's what this allows us to do in some ways it's it would be this is a great film if you have someone who maybe doesn't love horror or or maybe likes horror but doesn't really think about it that way this is a great way to sort of say here's a film that'll give you a really great sense of what horror is about and why people get so into it um we should probably wrap up um but before we do few things do you have a campus line or moment of the film I think the campus moment is definitely Hedley, um, Hadley's death with the merman. Like, yeah. you know. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and, and, you know, everything from, from, from his reaction to just just the, the weirdness of the merman itself, uh, I think is definitely the campus moment in the entire film. Yeah. And the scariest moment? Yeah, I'm still going to go with Jules's death. Like, yeah. I think that really is the point that it, uh, you know, obviously we, we, we really turn turn the switch and uh, find ourselves starting um, the real horror section of the film. Uh, and uh, I think it, it's the most visceral, the most brutal death of them all. Yeah, absolutely. It, they really, they hit big in that first death in a way that, that really drives it home. Uh, and, and finally, we have the Camp Scary scale. So a rating of one to seven, which is not a rating of value, but a rating from Divine Camp to Pure Terror. They are all valid forms of, of horror. Where would you place this on the scale? I've been doing a lot of thought and, and I'm, I find this one a bit difficult to put on the scale. I, I think it would have to come down in the, in the campy end because it, like, it would be disingenuous to refer to it as being pure terror. Um, but it like, like because you spend so much time, uh, you know, l- looking at this through through you know uh, a meta analysis lens, it, it kind of feels like it bumps off the the scale a little bit. So let, let look, let's call it um, let's call it a three to put it in the campy end. But we'll um, but it's like smudged over on the side of the scale a little bit because someone hasn't like written it in the in the circle properly so for those listening at home uh, a, a three on the scale is predominantly camp though more than incidentally scary and anyone who's seeing some correlation to the kinsey scale is correct uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey it, kinsey criticized his own scale but it's useful <laughs> uh so i want to say thanks dave um it's really fun to have you on and talk about a great horror film and something that, you know, clearly there's a lot of love there, which is really oh, great to see. It's great stuff. Do you have anything to plug to our, our lovely listeners? Yes, uh, I, I do. Uh, 
if you love podcasts that go on hiatus without notice for maybe a year or so, but then sort of dribble back into your feed, um, you can check out the Brewery Street Playground, which is a podcast I do with my good friend Steve Molk. Um, there's new episodes coming up very, very shortly. But again, if you want to hear like whinging middle-aged dads, um, <laughs> we're the podcast for you. Uh, Look, uh, I will say that your your podcast was actually quite useful for me in life because there is an episode where you talked about buying a car and I recently had to go and buy a car. I bought a new car for the first time in my life. I feel like a real adult. And I went back and listened to that episode because I remember the discussion about trade-in and I was like, I don't know what to do. So I was like, right, I remember to... People who are older than me and know better talking about being shitty about the trading price they got on their car. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we could help. It was, <laughs> it was <laughs> quite useful. Um, you know, so if, if nothing else, there is a reason to listen to Brewery Street Playground. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, you can follow Camp Scary Squee on Instagram and Twitter at Camp Scary Pod. You can, if you have questions or suggestions, you can email campscarysquee at gmail.com and make sure to rate and review Camp Scary and Squee so that other horror fans can find us. Thank you for joining us. And remember, don't scream. They'll hear you. looking well oh thank you i haven't showered (laughs) (laughs) well you know